Hey, you're listening to the Recess Podcast. Today, we have Melvin Paul on the show. He's the founder of Emprix Asia, an open access publishing platform. He was also featured on Forbes 30 Under 30 Asia in 2019. I'm Kessel. And I'm Sulin. Let's go. Hey, Melvin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on the show today. So we want to dive right into what you are doing now. Um, you have such a great CV. Um, you, you call it Emperix Asia, but previously it was known the Asian Entrepreneur. Um, what started as a printed publication and now it's evolved into an open access crowd publishing platform. Can you tell us how does this work and what is this all about? Well, essentially, our platform is about a very, you could say, a very grand ambition. We're trying to collect the collective knowledge and the experiences of people throughout Asia, through all the social scientific fields, and have all of them gathered in one single place, the singular hub that we're building. And so we've been doing that over the past eight years now, and uh, it's been quite an incredible journey. We've seen a lot of contributions, and to date, we have actually published I think just over a million open access articles. Amazing, amazing. So like you mentioned, you've produced over 1 million open access articles, which is an incredibly huge number. And they're mostly written and submitted by your thousand of volunteer authors. So what does your quality control process look like? How do you ensure that you're putting out accurate information and you know it's not just, I could just go on the platform and start writing about entrepreneurship? And, and Sulin, that's a great question. And indeed, actually, one of the greatest challenges with our work, actually, a majority of our team is really in editorial. We have a lot of submissions every single day. And we have to sort through all the, you could say, the, the torrents of information that's being put to us. A lot of them could be frivolous. A lot of them could be driven with agenda. So it is a very fine art of doing it. So what we do is we, we do believe in a democratic sort of process towards publishing. We don't really want to say that we have a certain type of article or a certain type of content that we're looking for. What we do work with instead is actually a guideline that is quite open-ended. As long as the articles are not clearly frivolous, not clearly agenda-driven, not clearly offensive or clearly nonsense, we generally allow it. And of course, a big part of it is also about the volunteers that also help us in sitting through the articles that we have. But ultimately, we try our very best to actually control the quality of the content that is there. But we don't really have a specific editorial direction that, that we're looking for as, as per, let's say, a conventional media organization. For us, it's about being as democratic as possible. I see. And because you have these thousands of volunteer authors giving you all this material, I was wondering, what is the motivation behind these people creating the articles? They're not being paid. What benefit do they get for putting in their time and expertise and um, experience in writing all these things? I think the very interesting thing is, you know, when you think about how the world works, we tend to think that everyone has a price tag, that we will only do certain things if there's some sort of monetary incentive and benefit for all of us. But I think at the same time, each and every one of us, um, including Kessel yourself and Sulin yourself, all of us, we have our own life experiences and maybe certain expertise that we have. 
And perhaps actually there is a great drive for us to want to try and share our expertise and our knowledge with other people too. But there isn't really, let's say, a very good platform to do so. Of course, today it is much more democratic. We could go on Twitter, we could go on, let's say, I don't know, Facebook or Instagram or somewhere or YouTube, let's say even. But again, you know, our Empirics brand itself and previously the Asian entrepreneur, we've actually established credibility in producing content that is quite, you know, of a certain quality, of a certain standard. And to be associated with us could be one of the factors that people feel they're confident to actually use this platform to publish the content, to get their words out there. And it is quite interesting because um, there's also a network effect as well. People who've actually published on our platform, they tend to also connect with the readers themselves. Uh, what are their true, let's say, motivations and drives? I don't know. But I guess the commonality is really this drive to share, this drive to really put their name out there and their knowledge out there, and perhaps maybe even to make impact in some way or some form. You guys just released um, the, first, the world's first podcast that is produced and run by an artificial intelligence. How does that work? Right. So we have only just launched uh, not too long ago in July, we've just launched the Empirics podcast, which is, yeah, we believe the world's very first podcast show that is entirely produced, managed and narrated by an artificial intelligence. So we say this quite confidently because with the show, there's absolutely zero human involvement. The AI is doing everything. So what it's doing is essentially it is studying the knowledge trends to discover which areas of topics are interesting at a current moment. And then it will decide to produce episodes on those areas. And in doing so, it would also do the editorial work and then ultimately it would also narrate it. And then after that show is actually published, it would also study the response in terms of the, the users, how they actually feedback the episodes themselves, what are the actual behaviors to then learn which other episodes to produce. So over time, hopefully it can also produce more relevant um, knowledge type episodes that we're trying to go for. I mean, I'm a podcast listener myself and I love listening po to podcasts because I felt like it's very um, close to me. I, I listen to them when I'm doing my laundry, doing the dishes before I go to bed. Um, I have a wide selection of different type of podcasts. But when it comes to AI, for me, um, I want to speak as a consumer. Um, I want to question as a consumer that um, how do I have I think trust, like how do I know that the AI is collecting the right information and I'm supposed to believe what it says because there's no human that's like overseeing this process. And Castle, you're absolutely right. You know, there is this, this great debate as more and more of our life and society and economy is getting more automated with artificial intelligence. There's this question of how reliable they can be. Certainly, I think uh, in terms of this area we're looking at, um, what we have found out even in our own research and developing the podcast is at this very moment, there is still a degree of human involvement required, at least at the foundation. For example, um, I'm not sure if you've heard of this, but was this um, episode, I mean, this, this incident of a Twitter bot that they gave free reign to just go on Twitter. And very quickly, I believe within a week, it became incredibly offensive. It became a, a racist Nazi AI. And it just, it was going crazy. So for us, what, what we do is at the very foundation, we've actually set the parameters for this AI that you can only work with the content that has been 
published and produced on our platform. So we've actually limited the scope of the area that it can work with. While in terms of the content itself, the ones that are actually published, they still go through an editorial process. So we do have a degree of control there in terms of the information that it works with. But of course, you're absolutely right. You know, this question of how reliable it can be. Well, the, the thing is so far the episodes we've produced, because it's working with the data sets we've given, uh, we haven't really had really any incident of it going totally off tangent or creating an episode that is clearly frivolous. It has been quite uh, straightforward so far. We, we had some struggles in other areas, though. For example, the aspect of it trying to, let's say, do some more complicated things, like, for example, being humorous. That is an area that I, I think our AI is still struggling with. But overall, in terms of the quality of information, it is actually quite reliable. And the reason why we built it is because it is so much more efficient than maybe what a human can do, at least in the production side. Uh, of course, Kessel, you mentioned podcasting. Uh, even in my own experience uh, doing YouTube as a hobby in my free time, sometimes we struggle in determining what episodes to actually produce and pursue. We do this sort of guesswork arithmetic as a human being to try and reference what episode to do. But the advantage of an AI is that it can work through thousands of data sets to try and come to the conclusion of what's relevant. But of course, the question is whether it can narrate it as well as we do and create a more comfortable listening experience. And that's something that we will see more work in terms of the future of this technology. This is the first time that I feel like my job is being threatened because we're producing podcasts and there's an AI that's basically doing all our jobs for us. <laughs> I don't think there is a threat. And I understand why there is a feeling of a threat because, you know, the question is, will AI replace us? Well, the future I see is not so much one of, you know, uh, Terminator Judgment Day. <laughs> the AIs are taking over. <laughs> the way I see it is that there are certain things that AI would be incredibly good at. And there's no way we as humans can match AI. But at the same time, I think there are certain things that are just incredibly human. So for example, people would listen to, let's say, the Empirics podcast, not because it is better than, let's say, Recess. Recess might be more entertaining to listen to. The personality of, let's say, you two, Sulin and, and Kessel, is great. Our AI is, of course, doesn't really have much of a personality. But again, the value proposition is different. For the Empirics podcast, it is this idea that we can potentially deliver knowledge trends to you very concisely. And that might be the only reason that anyone would listen to it. I don't think we'll see a future of an AI replacing, let's say, Ronnie Cheng, uh, you know, Netflix center comedy or Uncle Roger. Uh, you know, this is, of course, the realm of still the human. And I don't think we will see an AI there anytime soon. There is just areas that AIs at the moment just can't get into, I think. Good to know that there are certain consumer groups that, you know, will not be replaced. So speaking of consumers, um, Empiric's podcast appeals to a lot of readerships from the West, you know, countries like the US and Europe. But yet you are very Asian business and information focused platform. So why do you think the West is so interested in entrepreneurships in Asia? Well, I think, you know, the very interesting thing today is we live in a very global world and the borders are getting, you know, less and less relevant, I think. Of course, there's a lot of geopolitical issues, but I think that's because the fact is the globalization is almost unstoppable now. It's taken over. But the point, I think, is, you know, Asia is rising, uh, not only as an economic power over the past few decades, but really its cultural and social relevance. And so I think there's a lot of interest, really, to look towards the East and look towards Asia. Of course, we're seeing this not just in business, even in Hollywood. You know, we're seeing the rise of Asia and people are fascinated and they're curious about Asia. 
And potentially they come to us because they might think this is a, a place where they can actually look at the experiences of it at a grassroots level. And Embrix Asia is largely known for um, its knowledge database um, that is free for all to use. Um, I personally have went to your website and check out some articles and I see that um, there's no ads on it. How do you guys, how does this business break even? And that, that is a very good question. Actually, the, the greatest struggle over the past eight years is to maintain the open access nature. We strongly believe that, and because of our vision, that we want to keep it open access. And we strongly believe that actually advertising, whether it is actually the ad boxes or native advertising in the form of sponsored content, would actually affect the integrity, at least the academic integrity of the content. So what we actually do is we have built a business model that is basically entirely away from the media side of our current organization. So the media aspect and operations is entirely free, but we are monetizing through other ways. Previously with the Asian Entrepreneur, what we did actually is we established a private equity firm because of our position in Asia and our network. We're able to deal source incredibly well. So we worked with private equity funds uh, in the West, which eventually led to our own. But also at the same time, we got into the publishing business because, again, a lot of the big publishing houses, largely based in the West, they also source books. And the very interesting thing about books, whether they're printed or digital, is that the business itself is very similar to actually investment sourcing. It is very much an investment. And so we got into that line. And recently with our fundraise, we actually bought over a publishing company. And so we're going to publishing ourselves. The whole point being this, we are doing uh, as much as we can trying to make a business that runs entirely away from the media side so that we can keep that side entirely free and yet monetize through other ways. So speaking of publishing, this is really interesting. Recently, the Asian entrepreneur raised over 8 million US dollars and then rebranded to become Empirix Asia. Since then, you've explored printed publication, as you mentioned. But between our iPads, laptops and phones, most people haven't even touched a physical newspaper or magazine in months, if not years. So why did Empirix decide to return to print media given the advancement into the digital era? I think, Sulin, you're absolutely right about that. You know, if we look at print, it is undeniable overall that print is sunsetting. And, you know, this is, this is something that you see in, in almost every aspect of the statistics. But I think we have to come back to the idea of, of what a book is. You know, the book itself, to me, is very much a long-form codified text. You know, if you look at an article, let's say, on Pyrrhics, we're looking at an article between, let's say, 200 to 500 words, which is very very small, you know, the sort of value you get from that is educational value is, of course, limited by the amount of the text that's there. But a book itself is something more long form. Now, the book, in my opinion, will never go extinct because it's existed throughout, you know, all generations in different mediums. At one point, it was on, let's say, stone tablets, chiseled. It was on papyrus, cowhide, and then ultimately paper being the most popular medium for a very long time, many centuries. Yes, that is sunsetting. But again, we still think that besides, of course, we will explore the digital route, but in terms of long-form text, a lot of people still prefer to read a book in terms of its paper form format rather than just digitally. Of course, there's Kindle, there's, of course, tablets, and that can work well too. But still, we still see bookstores around the world. People still make books, still publish in the book format. And so we're exploring that too. But our acquisition of publishing company is not just about the format. It's actually about acquiring a company that has experience in 
working with longer form text in codifying it and editing it and actually distributing it, whether it is in digital or you know, in paper format. So we are optimistic. Of course, I think no one today really reads a magazine. We can read that digitally very easily, but at least in a book format, I still think print has um, a consideration of in terms of its utility. Thank you so much, Melvin, for coming on the show and just sharing your thoughts and your knowledge with us. I have learned uh, a few things today. Well, it's my pleasure. Congratulations on what you're doing and we wish you the best of luck in your future. Thank you, Castle, and thanks, Celine. And thanks a lot for having me on the show.